Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Dublin Tech Talks and Association with Icon Accounting. On uh, today's show, we have Shayna Flynn, who's the head of engineering for Trade IX. Uh, Trade IX is the world's leading provider of technology for global trade and supply chains. They enable customers, partners, and stakeholders to transact and exchange data smarter, faster, safer, and with more transparency. They provide this using the Marco Polo Network, which is an open enterprise software platform for trade and working capital finance to financial institutions and corporations. We hope you enjoy. Shane, thank you very much for joining us here on Dublin Tech Talks today. Pleasure. Pleasure. Always good to chat to you. So Trade IX, do you want to give us a bit of a, a background to what, what, what you're doing as a business and, and what problem you're, you're trying to solve? Absolutely, sure. So come here, um, in terms of the Dublin market in particular, uh, Trade IX is probably the biggest startup you've never heard of. So um, I've got over 100 people in engineering um, and we're busy building a, a blockchain-based, so a DLT, distributed ledger tech, uh, blockchain-based uh, trade finance network. And that's uh, interesting for a couple of reasons. One is um, blockchain, as you know, is you know one of the sort of non-de jure and everybody wants to be associated with it. But very often when you look at what people are doing with blockchain technology, with distributed ledger, it's not necessarily really changing things. So it's it's, you know, somewhat additive or even, you know, not really doing anything at all. Uh, there's a couple of areas, obviously crypto, it's 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 where it was born, um, in and around healthcare and management of healthcare records and the individual being able to control their own record and share what they want to with other um, people is obviously another very, very real and very valuable use of it. Uh, but inside of FinTech, one of the big things that everyone's always looked at is uh, trust and the validity of uh, a statement that somebody makes. So the non-repudiation part of it. Um, and, and that has, you know, been a problem for finance forever. Um, yeah. it always has been a case of even sort of as you were going from town to town with your letter of credit from another bank, you know, 400 years ago, it was a case of is Gavin Fox really who Gavin Fox says he is? And will he stand over if he says he's going to buy a load of my merchandise and come back three months time? Will he really do that? And the letter of credit and all of these things were ways of trying to do that. So when um, we started looking at trade finance, uh, one of the issues with it is it's huge paper based process all of which can be forged and you know messed with and there's a lot of fraud involved in it the huge fraud last week i don't know if you've seen it you're probably not tracking trade finance but a company called green cell capital ran into huge trouble last week and may cease to exist as a business because of fraud in the document documentary evidence that was being provided between the buyers and the sellers and taking loans from banks uh, blockchain allows all of that to be removed it allows you and I to create a working relationship, a trusted working relationship, even if we don't know each other, and allows a bank to know that that is an attested relationship. And um, so it's huge for the banks. It's it's a really interesting area for them in terms of de-risking. But if they can take out all of that paperwork, it's also a huge cost saver. And that huge cost saver is one of the reasons why we're most interested in it, which is there's about four trillion dollars worth of global trade every year and less than half of that can actually be financed because the cost of finance is greater than the value derived by the buyer and the supplier or the money made by the bank from that and 
by driving down the operational costs of doing that, you increase the size of the market. So that's a good thing for the banks. But more importantly, you increase the opportunity for smaller buyers and suppliers to get finance at a rate that makes sense to them and finance their businesses and their cash flow. And if you look at you know the madness we've gone through in the last year with um, COVID, that cash flow has become really, really important. You know, even here in Ireland, yeah. without the payments from government, most of the businesses would have gone under. They wouldn't have been able to pay salary. They wouldn't be able to do those things. So getting that finance into the hands of people who need it is really important. Uh, and that's what we're after. And that's what we're about here. So the Marco Polo Network, which is the, the name of the global trade finance network, uh, is all about doing that. It's about connecting buyers, suppliers to lenders uh, and uh, facilitating that trade in a very trust, trusted basis even if you've never met each other before, the, the trust that's brought inside of the network um, delivers for you from that perspective. And, and trade finance itself. Yeah, yeah, no, and, and trade finance itself is, you know, it's, it's, it's not the newest form of, of, of business. It's been, been going since, since day dot. Why, why is it taking a business like trade, I, uh, trade IX to come in and try and disrupt how it's been done? Yeah, well, 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 we're not alone. We're not alone. So, I mean, we trade would be another active, you know, well, semi-active in the market. But, um, but we trade will be doing it. There's a, a Contour uh, will be another company doing. It. So, there's a number. There's a number of people doing it, and that's important because it validates to us that yeah. you know we're in the right space. That there's there's more people trying to do what we're doing. And um, I'd say there's two things about it. One is this is genuinely. Um, any other attempt to do this has always been a centralized data store. Okay, so there are companies out there that do do trade finance, but they do it in a centralized manner. And the downside of the centralized manner is I, the bank, and you, the supplier, and you, the buyer, have to share all your details with a third party. And a third party that now has access to invisibility of your data. And some of that data will be really, really, really sensitive. So if, let's say, for by way of example, if I'm, say, BMW and you're an iron uh, or steel manufacturer in China, the price I pay for the steel that I buy you buy from you is hugely sensitive in an incredibly competitive market. And mm. I don't want anybody else knowing that or anybody else having visibility of that. Even my banks being aware of that creates a risk for me in terms of the sensitivity of that data. So the idea that you would just upload that to some central server somewhere that has access you know, to anybody is, is a risk that people don't like doing. Um, and then bluntly, it worked. It's very inefficient, but it worked. So trade finance yeah. as it is works. Um, so the, the issue has always been who can access it. And very often the costs are so high that it's only offered to the large players. And very often the large players aren't the people who need access to trade finance. It's one of those ironies where if you've got loads and loads of money in the bank, the banks are willing to um, uh, lend you more. You know, they give you an umbrella on a dry day kind of thing. So, so it's it's that ability to access um, customer for customers to access that those loans at the rates that make sense for them. And um, without something like distributed ledger, you were always doing it in ways where either you um, it was too public and understood by everybody it was too uh, constrained by what you needed to do or the cost of joining the network was too high and what we've done is using distributed ledger you drive down the cost you ensure it's absolutely distributed 
And by being a permissioned ledger, as opposed to say a standard, say the Bitcoin based blockchain, it's private. So therefore you have the privacy between Gavin trading and O'Flynn lending. Um, you have the connectivity at a price that price point that works. Um, and you have a network, a global network that allows you connect to what uh, you connect once to connect to many. So all of those three things are the key cornerstone of, of what you get from what we're building. And and it's all been made possible by the by by the Marco Polo network that's that's been created for, yeah, for, yeah. for this ecosystem. Um how did that come about? What what was the, the you know, financial institutions are usually very reluctant to, to get involved in these things, but they seem to have, have really embraced this and, and it's so so again, going I mean I, Again, I mean, the genesis of the company um, was uh, Rob Barnes, our CEO, and a couple of the other yeah. early founders were trade finance veterans. So Rob Barnes had founded a company called Prime, Prime Revenue, which is one of the big trade finance uh, software companies out there. Um, and it was all, but it was all based on a centralized system. Um, so when Rob started reading up on blockchain and permissioned ledger in particular, he went, this solves one of the big problems that we always had in prime revenue when we brought these service to others. And so the, the genesis of the idea was that um, the, the banks being involved, they've been involved since the get-go on the basis that um, Rob Barnes uh, approached uh, Corda, which is the underlying distributed ledger that we use. And Corda is a bank-backed um, business. So yeah. at the point in time where distributed ledger and blockchains were being looked at, uh, the guys, uh, our three behind Corda, came along and they said, look, we've got the banking finance smarts. We understand your business. We'll build a permissioned ledger that makes sense for your business. And the banks went, this is great. We'll back this. And in looking for use cases, um, Rob Barnes came to our three and said, I've got a use case I want to start building on top of this. And so that's the, the, the birth of Marco Polo came about from that. So there were, I think, 16 founding banks uh, who signed up right from the get go and said, we're willing to follow this proof of concept through. We're willing to part fund this. So we've got two major banks, uh, three major banks, in fact, uh, as shareholders of the business. Um, it's still venture backed, so it's still funding. Fun, we're still funder led, but um, but they paid right from the get go. They saw the value in it, and the value for them is uh, decreased risk, increased security, and a lower cost of operation. So the banks were looking at it from things that they care about implicitly. Then when we came along with things like the tag along in terms of the, you can deal with the long tail of trade finance, they just went there's an upside. We're going to make even, we're going to be able to address yeah. more loans, address more customers, make more money. But it has been lower cost of ownership for them, lower risk in terms of the more risk they can take out of a loan book, the better it is for them, the the the, the more money they make. So, so, Brilliant. And, 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 so when I was reading up on, on what Marco Polo was, the, the concept doesn't seem too Difficult if that. I don't, I, I'm not de trying to demystify it. It seems like an open API built yeah. on a blockchain. Yeah, no, no. Where... So it isn't. I mean, the bottom line, I mean, what I would always say to uh, anybody, and I, I think it's something that people in tech, so yourself, myself, we often lose sight of how groundbreaking some very simple technical things can be when you're looking at it from outside. Yeah. 
Do you know what I mean? So, and you know, I've done this with a whole heap of things, but what I did, the example I would always use is doing something once is easy and doing something a billion times is hard. So very often it's not the complexity in terms of finding Gavin, finding Shane, connecting them together and, you know, hey presto, updating a table on either side. Because effectively a distributed blockchain is a database where we both keep a copy. You know, it's it's nothing more complicated than that. Mm. And it's the synchronization and the messaging between the two and an external um source of non-repudiation that says Gavin and Shane are keeping that in sync and they are doing what they say they're doing. But but effectively it is just another database. That's that's it. And I could, you know, set a database and a messaging layer. But when you try and do something a billion times a day, and Facebook's a great example of this, right? Facebook literally is a storage place and a messaging place for your photos and your videos and your contacts list. Mm. That's all it is. Okay. Not complicated at all, right? Facebook handles a billion people's data all day, every day, never fails, never loses your stuff, moves it around, makes a lot of money out of advertising to you on the platform. But in fact, the technology that they've built is unsurpassed in terms of its network. Netflix is the same. Netflix manages yeah. a list of videos. And when you go watch, it streams the video. That's all it does. Okay. You know what I mean? Everything else around it is how do they do that for hundreds of millions of people all over the world, all the time, everywhere. And and the Marco Polo network is no different. It's, it's complexity is we've built something that will handle, allow you upload millions of invoices at a time. It'll allow you transact millions of dollars of businesses at any one moment in time, securely, quickly, and with, um, with that non-repudiation built in. So, um, yeah, it's it's easy and really hard at the same time. <laughs> they're, they're usually the best ideas, aren't they? Well, um, so, like, it, it, the, yeah, it, the, the network works on a, the transparency, the, the transparency and the trusted access of of, of it. Um, and and when I was reading up, and it, it explains the you know the, obviously blockchain works better when as the users grow and as the you know verification networks grow it is so is marco polo only going to really grow and be stronger and be a, a more trusted ledger as the business grows or as the as the as the banks adopt it completely so so i mean the bottom line is any network based business uh is uh, more valuable as more users get on the network so networks the network effect is that as you add more people to the network the value grows so and again the, the simple example is the phone like if you and i were the only two people in the world with a phone it would be yeah, a little bit useful, but I only really need to talk to you once in a while. And um, if there's 10 people, then 10 of us can talk to each other. And if there's a thousand people and all of a sudden, so the network effect grows from that perspective. And um, as the network grows, the values that really kick in are discovery, which is when I come onto the network, I can see all these people connect to all these other people and I can invite all of my customers onto the network. So if you look at the, the one of our major operations, offerings, which is supply chain finance and um, a buyer of goods uploads all of their suppliers and says to its bank, the buyer bank says, hey, I'm ordering all this stuff from Fox trading and from Martin and Meyer trading or whatever it may be. And um, I want to I want you to offer them credit terms that are attractive 
because I want to make sure that if they need money to get paid to make payroll so that they can build what I've ordered from them or buy raw materials so they can build what I've ordered them, I want you to do that. And I'm guaranteeing that if they build that stuff and send it to me, that I'm paying for it. So the bank goes, yeah. well, you're good for it. You've always been good for it. You've paid us every time. So we'll offer them terms on your service. But that becomes more and more and more valuable. The more and more suppliers are on the network, the more and more loans that the bank makes, the more money it makes. And so, yeah, so so as it grows, it becomes more and more valuable. Um, and that is absolutely sort of it's a transaction based fee model. And that is absolutely the case. The more transactions on the network, uh, the more money we make, the more transactions on the network, the more money the banks make, the more transactions on the network, the more loans that are being made to businesses that need it. And fundamentally, it comes down to that, which is if the businesses didn't need the money, there'd be no need for this offering. Money always makes the world go around. Um, in, in relation to, so, so it's one of the few examples or the few tangible bits of, of blockchain that I can see of the last few years that, that that is very tangible and very easy to actually understand what the concepts are and what, yeah. what the outputs are. You know, apart from say smart contracts and as you mentioned earlier, um, healthcare, is is that a is is that a problem with blockchain or is that just a you know everybody looked at it as a cryptocurrency and nobody actually looked at the technology underneath? Um, I you know I'm not sure. I mean, very often from my perspective, technology comes along, you know, in waves, and when hmm. it arrives, people go, "Oh my God, this is going to change the world! It's amazing!" and and we do have to go through a phase of literally just testing it out and going, does it work in this example? Does it work in this area? Does it work for these use cases? And and distributed ledger has huge amounts of value in certain places. So as I said, and one of the things I talked to you about was there's a lot of people using it at the moment in, in an area that I would describe it as a, an interesting marketing concept, but not true value. And that would be in, say, the provenance of... Um, your say your coffee or your chocolate or whatever that kind of so very often you see a QR code on a chocolate bar or on a coffee box yeah. that just says so the value of knowing that your fair trade certified coffee has you know a QR code and you can trace its provenance all the way back to Colombia is interesting okay but truthfully as a consumer it it doesn't really matter and if I trust the fair trade logo I should be okay the QR code gives it that little bit more value. And, and I'm not sure, maybe I'm wrong here, maybe there's a huge amount of um, trickery involved in behind those certification, but I don't believe so. But if it is a case that the QR code there is to show that this is absolutely the case, I don't know. And I know the whiskey manufacturers started putting the same things. They were doing blockchain-based track traceability on your um, bottles of whiskey, your high value bottles of whiskey. But the point would be that doesn't need blockchain to do that. you know. Yagio could do that directly. Irish distillers could do that directly on a database. So the the need for it to be used really kicks into are there two parties? And is the data very private and should only part of it be shared? And can they discover each other easily? You know what I mean? So if I just go onto the internet and try and find a Chinese supplier for the business that I'm setting up here in Dublin, that's a bit scary. I don't know them. They don't know me. You know, what am yeah. I ordering? And there was that, uh, again, weird. It was a weird week last week. There was the second big fraud. I don't know if you saw it. The, the guys who bought 30 tons of copper 
and it was painted stones and these guys had faked yeah. everything they'd faked insurance certs they'd broken the seals on the containers and taken out all the copper and filled it with stones but do you know what i mean there's all that stuff going on and if you join a network and by dint of being on that network you know the other people on that network have been legally validated and they are who they say they are and you can see how much they're transacting with everybody else while not knowing what those transactions are because what they are is private but the fact that they're busy transacting is a good thing and no different to say amazon's trusted you know trader where you get the little yeah. you know a thousand a thousand transactions i've no idea what those other people have bought on amazon but i know that a thousand <laughs> people have liked it and that's no but that that's gives me that little air of trust yeah. it's in the amazon marketplace i trust it it's you know got a thousand previous customers i trust it it's you know a trust pilot ratio of say four out of five so all of those things bring value and um what marco polo does is in the trade finance arena it means you're connecting to your suppliers you're connecting to your buyers you're connecting to other banks that you can vouch for by dint of them being on the network you know for example that the network's done its sanction checks. You're not allowed to be a member of Marco Polo if sanction checks haven't been passed. Um, the know your customer and anti-money laundering stuff always needs to be done between a bank and its customer. So we can't get around that, but we can facilitate that. So we make that easier for a bank to bring those two things together. But, um, but yeah, so those trusted aspects of the network are really where a lot of that value comes from. And it, just brings you to a level well above you found somebody on the internet and decided to order some, you know, sort of copper, yeah. copper materials from them. So, so just even because the, the next couple of things, just around the security of it, the, the, the API ver reasoning behind it is the KYC and AML, all the, the different products that are available there, you know, they plug straight into the Marco Polo environment. You know, how does the security element around that then, yeah. You know, because you don't want to, you know, that is what the, the sell point is. It's the, you know, the security version of it. You don't want something coming in from outside to disrupt that. Yeah, yeah. So, well, there's a couple of things. The 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 APIs, the APIs for KYC and AML would literally just be between the bank and themselves. So so if, if you consider that, what we're talking about there is, um, and this is not yet available, this is coming down the pipes, but on Marco Polo, when you want to connect a, a a corporate to you, the bank, you're able to just connect to your chosen AML supplier through the API. So you just go, but the, but the connectivity is okay. there. You're sending the information from Marco Polo through you to your AML or KYC provider. They come back with the validation, which you then say, I'm valid. So we are not doing that. And we're okay, not you basically get a cert to say, yeah. Yeah, so we're we're not allowed. Yeah, you upload your cert to say we're valid. Yeah, precisely, precisely. So so that's how that piece works. But but in terms of the security itself, and again, this is from the ground up, and um, we've spent mm. a lot of time on that secure aspect of the network. And and while we're not shifting the money around, and this is going to be an interesting one, we're not shifting the money around per se. The payments are all off chain. They're they're handled external to us, and um, we are. Um, very very heavily focused on the security of that network so we spend a fair amount of time on risk and compliance and and we're not uh, we're not a regulated entity we don't need to do these things 
but we do these things because we're dealing with regulated entities. So we've spent a lot of time on our ISO compliance. Uh, we'll be getting SOC 1 and 2 compliance this year. Um, and that is all about uh, proving to our customers that we take this business and the security of it and their compliance issues as seriously as they do. Yeah, no, definitely. It's a, yeah, be seen to be in the environment that you're working in, isn't it? That, that type of mindset. Um, yeah, yeah, very much so. And, and then just in, in, in relation to the tech that you're using, you're, you're in Azure House, aren't you? And we are, yeah, the production environment is your work. We're, we're technically cloud agnostic, but uh, the production network is all in Microsoft Azure. Um, it's all built on the Corda DLTs from R3. Um, it's a Kubernetes-based environment. Um, and the tech stack, if you want to get boring about it uh, for nerd, the nerds here, and the tech stack is Kotlin, Angular front end, uh, Postgres DB at the back end. Um, but but yeah, so 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 fundamentally that uh, we use GCP uh, and AWS just for internal dev test environments. Uh, the production network is all Azure, and that was just a simplification for us. And um, they're a really good partner, so that helps as well. But but it it is a case of uh, we use all of them, and I have to be able to use all of them because uh, you know heaven forbid uh, Azure would to go down in Europe. We'd need the capacity to switch over to one of the other networks yeah. if we have to, um, and and we 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 test these things but never put them into practice. So it, it is important. It's your own COVID plan, is it? Um, yeah. Well, funny enough, that was really that was really interesting <laughs> for us. We we got blocked from bringing on new servers during COVID because of all of the corporates that were moving to offline and having to set up mail servers and all their online 365 and all that kind of stuff. And and for about a week, we could not get uh, any more Azure capacity. Um, and we're a pretty big Azure, we're a pretty big Azure user, so we would be on there when these guys ask, let them through. And um, a mm -hmm. funny, you've just reminded me of a security funny issue with Azure. Um, we were in the early days, which must have been about a year and a half ago, Azure blocked us because uh, we went from um, four clusters to 50 clusters in 24 hours. And typically the only people who ramp up at that speed uh, are, uh, bit, they said Bitcoin miners, in fact, illegal Bitcoin miners who've stolen somebody's credentials, just flood the network and get in and get out really quickly. Um, uh, they'd never seen somebody do what we were doing, but that was us stress testing the network and saying, if we had to onboard a thousand customers in one go, what would it, what would happen? And it can be mm. automated. So we automated it, it kicked in, it ran the thing up and they immediately flagged us as a risk. Um, and it took us a few days to get that sorted out. We became best friends with some people out in Redmond in Microsoft headquarters, but they were fascinated. They said, we've never seen somebody do this do something like that yet. And and all it was was a scale-up test. So now we have the connection there to let them know in advance, we're going to be doing something crazy now. You're going to see some really big sort of, you know, usage all of for, for 24 hours. Um, but yeah, but, but and that's part of why we're focused on a single network provider from that perspective. It allows yeah. you to have those kind of, those kind of conversations and that kind of um, experience. Um, and I'm sure- That, that really shows you that bit. It just shows you that Big Brother is really watching when you when you ramp up or when you you press the go yeah. button. There's somebody actually watching and watching yeah. the flags go. Absolutely, but don't you want it? You know what I mean? Like it. it, it yeah. really, I mean, they're, 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 for for all the will in the world, um, 
you know, and we, we fell on the wrong side of it. But as I said to, you know, the CEO at the time, because he was there going, what's going on? I said, don't you rather that they put the throttle on that than mm. don't and then send us a bill, you know, three weeks later for, you know, $200,000 worth of usage and we don't know what's going on. So I'd rather Big Brother was watching my network like that and taking care of business. Um, and they're, 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 as I said, they've been really good. They've been really good on that kind of level. And again, rock solid, secure. So. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's brilliant. Um, you, you mentioned it a couple of about, about, about scaling and about moving and about, you know, you have 100 already. Well, what, what is, what's the plan for, for, for the business? You know, what's the, I won't even say five-year plan. What's the 12, 24-month plan? Well, come here. I mean, it's as with all startups, the five-year plan is we'll either be a unicorn or we'll be an also ran and I'll be talking to you about looking for a job. But and that's you know that's the truth of, that's the truth of all of it. And Trade IX literally, if this is successful, and I don't even say if when this is successful, like I, I just I thoroughly and passionately believe in all of this. Uh, but when it is successful, this can be a unicorn. So it's it's that interesting and exciting and uh you know we've got paying customers in banks we've got paying customers in corps we've got all this and you have a huge on tap market you know what i mean so the banks make about 100 billion in revenue from trade finance every year and we're just looking to take a little slice mm. of that revenue by facilitating taking out their costs and that kind of stuff so the chances of the business being enormous are huge in the short term and we are growing like a demon on two sides. One is just um, our need to address all of the customer use cases. So while trade finance itself is fairly simple, it comes in about 200 different varieties and we're knocking them off one by one by one. And there just is a huge, so I have about three years of at current size, which is, you know, roughly a hundred engineers, let's say, keep it simple, a hundred engineers. Um, I have about three years of pent up work to do. And from a sales perspective, if I had it all done next week, the sales team say they could sell all of those products in all of the markets. Okay. So there's a huge pent up demand and that's, I'm under pressure to deliver against that. So we're growing in order to facilitate that where we've got lots of funding to do so, which is great and a very receptive uh, board and a very receptive management team. So we're hiring um, in Dublin, to just to build against that. Uh, but I also, um, at the moment, am reliant on a third party outsourcer uh, who I love and trust and have worked with for years, but I'm slightly imbalanced on that and I want to redress the balance. So the the, the scaling in Dublin will go, we, we took premises last year, or the year before last now, COVID's a written off year. And two years ago, we signed a lease on a building that could hold about 100 people. And, and at the time we were 40. And those hiring plans were put on ice because of COVID. And I, I was saying to you, I was interviewing this morning and one of the people I was talking to was having that conversation going, they wonder how if they took a job with us, they, how they'll be onboarded and what life will be like because they won't have the office experience and the, you know, the press and the flesh and, you know, coffee chats when you, go mm. down the, you know, the water cooler stuff. So, but that growth is now kicking in now. We can't wait any longer. We, we will be opening the office at some stage in 2021. We just don't know when. And, um, but I can't wait any longer. And therefore we got to get the boots on the ground, even if the boots are going to be in their, at the end of their garden for you or in their, you know, the back room of their house. Uh, for the time being 
Um, so, so well, you see, you see stripes. You see stripes announcement last night. So you're you're up against. Oh yeah, you're up against the competition is starting. Nobody, I, I think, nobody's been waiting. Um, I think everybody took a pause, and I, I think that was a really important pause for people to take. Uh, but now people have assessed. Okay, this this is here. Let's just get going with it. As yeah. you said, there you can, you can't wait anymore. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think so. so. It's um, agreed, agreed. And 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 then what's the plans? Is it a you just touched on it there? Twenty one is the office, and is it? Didn't everybody figure it out from then? Because that's probably the biggest question now in a lot of people's minds: is okay, we are going back to work soon in an office, but yeah. what is that? Have you have you uh, thought about that or? I mean, sure. I mean, funnily enough, I um, I you know, I've been in tech for since the last millennium, Gavin. It's been a long time. Um, so yeah, so I genuinely, when I um, when I look at work and when I look at what we do, we didn't <laughs> suffer a day's downtime as a result of COVID. We were a 100% cloud-based um, online business and our interaction with our teams were exactly the same. So the day we closed the office, uh, everybody just worked from home from then on, right? It's been really tough for some people. It's been really hard. Their home environments just weren't conducive to working. And some of them are living sort of effectively alone and by themselves. Just it's it's been so, so tough for some people. But technically, no problem for us to run 100 percent without office. Mm. Except for the fact that people need to interact and the human parts of getting things done and sometimes the speed with which you can get things achieved uh, is much enhanced by being in the office at the same time together. So I think the return to work is going to be, I mean, we regularly poll staff and there's, you know, I would say a cohort of maybe 20% who want to get into the office immediately. Yeah. Like their life has been so compromised by working from home that they want to get straight back uh, and they would almost do it even risk catching COVID kind of thing. There's a cohort again, probably of around 20, maybe higher 25%, who have loved not having a three hour commute, one hour and a half in the morning, one hour and a half. Yeah. And they would like to come into the office for a day a week or maybe two days a month kind of thing. And I think what we're gonna struggle with as a group is just finding where that's gonna land and how you facilitate and accommodate all of that. Um, and, and how you do it um, in a way that works. So yeah. our, thinking, our thinking about it is uh, we want to get back to the office uh, and we want whoever wants to be in the office all the time to be there. And we want the people who want more flexibility to have that flexibility. Um, and it really will come down to that. But what we'll probably end up with is, you know, team days. So and it's the nice thing about our business is, you know, I've got um, the the, dev, the the cross-functional teams are, are seven engineers in, in number. Right. So, you know, you've got about eight, 10, 12 14 teams and um, so they could all quite easily come in and out of the office on different days and um, where that works so so we will kind of stuck it and see and um, i think one of the things that might happen is we'll go back to bigger desks so every time i've moved offices in the last 20 years my desk has shrunk you know as soon as the pin monitors came in for it was great they took out the crt tubes everyone got flat screens you got your desk back and then within about nine months they reconfigured the office and made the desk smaller because they didn't need it all for the, the monitor anymore and 
And we all have these 60 by 90 desks. And I think what's going to happen is, or one of the things I'd love to happen is those desks grew back to where they were when I started out my career, which was probably practically a meter and a half, you know, yeah. kind of thing. So I'd like to see more desk space for people because I think you can be much more productive and creative when you've got space to, you know, work on paper, work on the laptop, work on screens, work on all that kind of stuff. Um, but who knows? Who knows? But yeah, no, it's, it's it's going to be an interesting six months on that. The the way in that and and two more questions to finish on. Um, because I know this is the question that I'm asked all the time. Uh, you mentioned it about using third parties uh, for scaling companies, and it's a it, it's a question I see on on a few forums and, and and talking to founders is what you know what do you think is the right balance? Is it a an outsourced partner? Do you have to have a trusted outsourced partner, or what's the situation there? Uh, it really, it, it, come here, it really depends on what you're doing. So if you just have a project, a piece of work that needs to be done, um, you could probably just literally go to market and choose sort of an outsourced partner to do it. Um, my outsourced partner is working with me on my three and my five year plan. Uh, and I have a very deep relationship with them. So, and have used them through three or four companies previously. And um, so mm. that is an absolutely trusted partner relationship. My One of my management team is a full-time employee of theirs and is fully embedded in the team, attends, except for internal private meetings, attends everything, you know, all my management meetings, mm. engineering meetings. Um, and I don't differentiate between somebody who I'm paying through an outsource partner or as a contractor or as a full-time employee. So for me, it's really important to get a good mix and a good balance. Um, the uh, the use of them both, it really is suck it and see. I think um, probably a 60, 40, 65, 35 balance of full-time internal versus long-term partner is good for a control of finance and delivery perspective. Um, I'm currently out of whack with that at the moment. Um, and just, we, we needed to do that and we needed to grow, so it made sense. But I'd rather bring it back. Um, a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, with the best will in the world, um, I'm not paying those guys. They're getting paid to work on my project. They're really well invested in what we do. And they're really bought into the work. They've poured their heart and soul and their late nights and weekends when they've had to do it into the software stack. So they've huge ownership of that. But the bottom line is, um, you know, the reward structure, the benefit structure, all of the things you use to sort of work with these people isn't there inside of that you do have with an internal and and the IP and everything about it sits with another because mm. it's so so my exposure would be that um when you know John or Mary decides to leave that company, when she decides to go, I can't, you know, try and go look. Can I give you share yeah. options? Can I up your salary? Can I give you an extra few days holidays? None of those levers are there for me, and therefore uh, I'm exposed to losing all of that tribal knowledge that Mary takes out the door when she goes. So you balance those two things, and you want to have that skewed in your favor. But it, it does it does depend on what you're doing. You know, if, if what you're doing yeah. doesn't take a whole heap of time to build up the knowledge, you know, it becomes just much more of a, you know, I could go down to the corner of the street and pick somebody up. Uh, what we're doing is very intensive and the the learning curve is long enough and the 
the number of people that know it and understand it is is fairly rarefied as well. So you've got all of that going on. Um, yeah, no, brilliant. Thanks, Mel, for your time, Shane. I, I won't take up any more of your time this morning today. I know, I know you're a busy man, but uh, Shane, thanks, Mel, for your time. And it was a, a really interesting chat. Pleasure. Um, speak to you soon. Take care, guys. Shane O'Flynn, Head of Engineering with Trade IX. Um, really nice speaking with him. He's a really good guy. Um, seems to be a really interesting product. They're flying, uh, potentially, as he says, going to be the next um, Irish unicorn. Uh, I'll post all their details at the bottom of the post. Um, reach out if, if you're interested in having a chat to them. Um, for ourselves, sign up, uh, subscribe, listen to our podcast, comment, uh, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.